0: Morning Life Church, I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Um, I hope you have a Bible with you or some way to get the Bible in front of you. And in fact, if you don't, I'd encourage you just to hit pause on this live stream um, and go find a way to get the Bible in front of you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this morning, looking at what is traditionally called the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, 33 to 46, as we just continue to walk through the parables that Jesus told in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, just right out of the gate this morning, I'll tell you that I have really only one goal or desire or aim for our time together in the Word this morning. And as I have uh, studied this passage and prayed over it and prepared for this time and, and prayed some more, there really is just one thing that my heart longs to see come from the time that we have together in God's Word today. I mean, I just simply and sincerely hope that as we spend time in the word together today, that we would come away from this time loving Jesus more. That's it. I pray that we would see Jesus for who he reveals himself to be in this passage and in response to who Jesus is. I just pray that that we would love him more than we did before we began in this time together today. And that might seem like a really simple thing to pray, a really simple aim or desire for our time this morning. But I mean, the truth is that that is actually a supernatural thing. Like if any one of us is going to love our Savior more today, that will only be because the Holy Spirit of God does a supernatural work in that one of us. And if all of us are going to grow in our love for and our affection for Jesus this morning, That will only be because the Lord has done a miracle in our hearts through our time in his word today. That's what we need. That's what we pray for and what we long for. We need the Lord's help. We need God to intervene in our lives in such a way here and now through the power of his spirit and through the preaching of his word so that we might be drawn to him more, so that we might love Jesus more because we need God to help us in that, we should begin by praying together. Let's pray, church. Father, we do need you now. We need your spirit to give us understanding, but even more than we need understanding, Lord, we need your spirit to work in us in such a way that where we are blind, we might see. Where we are deaf, we might hear, so that our hearts would be in a real and true and genuine way, opened to the person and work of your son, Jesus, that we might be stirred to love him more. Yeah, we need you for that. and We pray that you would work here and now through your word to do that. We pray that in Christ's name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The parable of the tenants. Matthew. Twenty-one, thirty-three, to 46, Jesus is teaching, and he says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants To get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They, the people listening, said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. It will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now Jesus tells in Matthew chapters 21 and 22, three parables back to back to back. He tells those parables while he is in the temple confronting the religious leaders of his day, the chief priests and the Pharisees. And in a real way, he's telling these parables against those chief priests and Pharisees. He's telling those parables against their leadership of God's people, Israel. And in this particular parable, it is quite clear that it's the chief priests and the Pharisees who are the wicked tenants who hate the master and who killed his son. As we think about the parable, the master is, I think, pretty clearly God himself. This master, he purchases a field, and he plants a vineyard in that field. And then as Jesus tells this story, I think he wants to draw our attention to just how patient and careful and deliberate this master is. And because not many of us own vineyards, we might not immediately realize the care and attention that this master gives. But he does indeed care very well for this vineyard that he plants. Jesus emphasizes that he dug a wine press in that vineyard. And that's an effort that would have taken this master a great deal of time and a great deal of effort. A wine press in the time of Jesus would have been these two stone basins really cut out of or hewn out of a rocky slope in a hill. And so there would have been this upper basin and a lower basin, and they would have, been, would have been connected to one another by a channel also cut out of the rock in that hill. So that when the workers in the vineyards had fruit, they would take those grapes and put them in the upper basin, and then they would mash those grapes with their feet, and the juice would flow out of the grapes down the channel, into that lower stone basin. And Jesus's point in telling us that this master went out of the way to put a wine press in his vineyard is he's simply pointing out, right, you can't buy this wine press at Walmart. But this is something that takes effort and labor and time. Yet this master, he is putting all of that effort and labor and time into his vineyard. He's also making sure that The people who work his vineyard will be protected. So he puts a tower in the vineyard so that a watchman can stay on top of that tower and watch out for thieves and robbers and people who might come in and try to steal from the vineyard or harm the vineyard workers. He puts a fence around it so that the vineyard will be protected from pests and other predators. Indeed, this is a master who cares very much about the work that is going to happen in the vineyard that he has planted. And again, we might not recognize this, not being vineyard owners ourselves, but even today, if you plant a vineyard, you don't get an immediate return on that investment. It takes four or sometimes five years before vines that are planted can bear the kind of fruit that you need to make wine. And so this master, he is a patient businessman going in a very deliberate and careful way about his work. Now, the vineyard in the parable is intended to represent the people of God. That's actually a common metaphor for the Old Testament people of God throughout the Old Testament. You can see that time and time again. In particular, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is the song of the vineyard where God is singing a song about his fruitless people. But the vineyard in the Old Testament represents God's people, his chosen people. Of course, in the Old Testament, that was the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. They are the people chosen by God and planted by God in the good soil to grow up and bear fruit for his namesake, for his glory. These are the people who are led by the wicked tenants, by the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees. One of the key points of this parable is that these tenants are not caring well for the vineyard, for the people that God has entrusted to them. The tenants, as we've said, they are the religious leaders. And I think one thing we are supposed to see in this parable is that they clearly hate their master. They do not love him. They do not respect him. And so when he sends servants to them and even ultimately his son to them, they reject those people every time because, in truth, they've rejected, they have hated their master. The servants that Jesus mentions in the parable represent the prophets, probably the Old Testament prophets and even New Testament prophets like John the Baptist. They're the people who have come to bring God's word to God's people. But because the tenants hate the master, they hate also his servants. Some, Jesus says in verse 35, they beat. Some, they killed. Some, they stoned. Finally, as a result of that, the master decides. He says it in verse 37 to send his son. They will respect my son, he says. But note how these tenants who hate their master respond even to the son. Verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. In other words, this is our opportunity to be done with the master finally and forever. And so, verse 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard killed him. And of course, the master's son in this parable represents Jesus himself. Jesus is actually predicting what is about to happen in his own life. He went to the wicked tenants, the leaders of Israel, and they took him and threw him out of the city and killed him. Now, earlier I said that it would take a miracle today for any one of us to Love Jesus more in light of who Jesus reveals himself to be in this parable. Why do I say that? Why do I say that it'll take a miracle for us to love Jesus more today? Well, the Bible tells us that the natural condition of our hearts is not love for God, but actually hatred for God. In other words, the Bible says we don't come into the world as morally neutral agents. Perhaps you remember like the cartoon character who has this like good angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder and those agents are trying to persuade him to go one direction or another, like he's neutral and he might be persuaded to become good or to become evil. The Bible says that's not who we are, right? That's not how we are born into the world. And we're certainly not born into the world naturally loving God, right? Even if you were born into a God-fearing family, the kind of family that raised you in the church so that you were in a church building every time it was open, Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday evening for the potluck and prayer gathering, right? Even if that was you, you were not born loving God, and nor was I. Our natural condition, apart from God's divine intervention in our lives, is actually that we hate God. We're born hating Him. We're born as God's enemies, the Bible tells us. And in this parable, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they are just this vivid picture of hatred for God. Though they are entrusted with leadership over God's people, they actually hate their master. They hate him enough to kill his one and only son. But why? Why do these religious leaders hate God? And beyond that, why do we naturally hate God? Well, a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a pastor named Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards was absolutely, astonishingly brilliant. He was the kind of brilliant that Princeton named buildings after him, not because he gave money to Princeton, but simply because he was so brilliant while he was at Princeton. And Edwards said that many men will say that they hate God because of his laws, They'll say that they think that God's laws are too restrictive or too lax. That God's laws are unfair or unjust. And because of his laws, people will claim that they hate God. But Edward says people, they may say that, but they don't actually hate God because of his laws. And he also said that people will sometimes claim to hate God because of his judgments. Because of how God chooses to run the world and his creation because of what God decides to do, and because of what God decides not to do. Edward says sometimes people will claim to hate God because of that, but they don't actually hate God because of his judgments. Edward said that at the core, the reason men hate God is because they hate God. The reason people are naturally inclined to hatred for God is because we hate who God is. We hate naturally his characteristics, and his attributes. And Edwards very famously singled out four specific attributes that we struggle most with. Edwards says that we hate God because of his holiness. We hate God because of his omnipotence. That means that God is all-powerful. We hate God because of his omniscience. That means that God is all-knowing. And we hate God because of his immutability. That means that God never, ever, ever changes. Because of who he is, we hate God. Just think about it for a minute. Edward said that we hate God's holiness primarily because it exposes how unholy we are. Right? The best way to spot a fake, a counterfeit, is to compare that counterfeit to the real thing, to the genuine article. And even if you imagine a dull, dingy piece of off-white paper To us, that piece of paper might seem white until you compare it to a crisp, new, brilliantly true white piece of paper, right? The real thing will always expose a fake for what it is. And in the same way, God's true, perfect holiness, it exposes our unholiness. His perfect righteousness, it exposes how pathetic our attempts at self-righteousness really are. I mean, this is why the Pharisees and the chief priests hated Jesus. They wanted everybody alive to believe that they were the righteous ones, to believe that they were the holy ones. But then Jesus showed up in perfect holiness and exposed them as frauds. And they just hated him for that. Edward says that we hate God's omniscience, the fact that God knows all things, because deep inside there are many things that we want to hide from God and from others. We have these secret sins that we have concealed in our hearts from our past and even from our present. And an omniscient God shatters the delusion that those things will remain secret. The truth is, an omniscient God means that everything that we've ever done or said or thought or felt, and everything that we ever haven't done that we should have done, everything that we ever haven't said that we should have said, everything that we haven't thought and haven't felt that we should have thought and should have felt. All of those things are known by God, and they will one day in history be exposed because God is omniscient, and we just hate him for that deep inside. Edward said we hate the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful, again, because we, we cling to the delusion that we're strong and not weak. We want to pretend that we have power, and when we consider the omnipotence of God, we're confronted by the fiction of We are strong when, in fact, we're weak. In the same way that an eight-year-old bully doesn't act so strong when a bunch of middle schoolers show up on the playground. In the same way that if you're working out at the gym, you don't stand so tall when a world-class power lifter comes in and starts lifting next to you, right? If you're curling 15s, it doesn't seem so great when the dude next to you is curling 50s. In that very same way right, the true power of God, the omnipotence of God makes us feel weak. And naturally, we hate God for that. And Edwards added that we hate God because he is immutable, because he's unchanging. And the reason we hate God because he's immutable is because it means that everything that we already hate about God will always be true about God. And so God will always be perfectly holy. He's not going to soften up in his old age, later in his life, he's not going to suddenly take a different, softer view of our sins. He's always going to be perfectly and absolutely pure. Because God is immutable, he's always going to be omniscient. He's always going to be all-knowing, which means nothing's ever going to slip through the cracks with God. He's not going to become a feeble pushover of an old man late in his life. He will always be all-knowing. Nothing will ever be concealed from him because he's immutable. And because God's immutable, that means he will always be omnipotent. His power isn't going to diminish. In our heart of hearts, we're like young children who wrestle with their father, longing for the day when they will be older and stronger, and for the day when their father will be older and weaker, so they might finally in that day best him. And the immutable omnipotence of God means that that day simply will never be. God's power is unchanging, and we will never be stronger than He is. His strength will always expose our weakness. And so, Edward's point was that God will always unchangingly be everything that we naturally hate about Him. That is, unless God intervenes in our hearts and this parable is actually the story of how God does that this is the story of God's intervention this is the story of God making his enemies his friends it's the story of God making those who hate him his adopted children in verse 40 Jesus he traps these wicked tenants who hate him in their own words he asks that question which is the punchline of the parable verse 40 when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, He quotes Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, you wicked tenants, and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And what Jesus does here, we see him shifting the metaphor. He's moving away from the vineyard and now moving to the construction site. Builders in Jesus' day, they would scour the countryside looking for the perfect stones to lay in the foundation of their buildings. And the most critical of those foundation stones would be the cornerstone. It would be the stone that they laid in the corner to line up all of the other stones in terms of their size and their weight and their depth in the soil. And Jesus is saying to these wicked tenants, to these chief priests and the Pharisees, he's saying you're like builders who were looking for the perfect cornerstone and you saw it and you rejected it. But then God came and took that rejected stone and made it the perfect cornerstone of his true people, of his living temple, the body of Christ. And now all who stumble on that stone will perish. All who fall under that stone will be crushed by it. Jesus said. And of course, the leaders, they know that Jesus is talking about them here. That's actually the true irony of this parable. Jesus tells a parable which inspires the leaders to do exactly what the parable said they would do. They hated their master. They did not respect their master's son. And so, in just a few chapters ahead in the Gospel of Matthew, they arrest their master's son. They beat their master's son. They mock their master's son, and then they send him out of the city and crucify their master's son on a lonely hill called Golgotha. Today, as we think about this parable, I think there are two lessons primarily that we need to consider. First, we need to consider the fact that this parable paints a very vivid and beautiful picture for us of the patience of God. To our ears... The master in this parable, if we're honest, he seems like a gullible dupe, doesn't he? I mean, he sent servants to his tenants, and they've mocked and stoned and killed those servants. He sent more servants to his tenants, and they treated them the same way. So finally, he thinks, you know, surely they'll respect my son. But I don't think anyone listening to this parable the first time or reading it 2,000 years later expects these wicked tenants to do anything different. I don't think any of us expect these tenants to respect the Son. I mean, if the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, but expecting different results each time, then this master is insane. Except that he isn't. No, he is stunningly patient and gracious. And what appears to us to be some naive gullibility is actually just a marvelous expression of his patience and his love and his grace. Church, this this is our God. the Father sent the Son to die for the very people who nailed him to the cross. The Son was forsaken by the Father so that the very people who forsook him in this life would never have to be forsaken by the Father in eternity if they trust him in faith. God did not respond to the rebels who hated him with hatred, but with patient, self-sacrificial love. He sent his son so that those who hated his son could become his sons and his daughters. Please you set your mind and your hearts on that this morning? I mean, you hated God. I hated God. That's what our sinful rebellion amounted to. And he responded, not by crushing us, but by crushing his son for us. He is patient. He is so gracious. Will you set your mind on him today? Come, behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. And would you set your mind on that today? on the incredible, gracious patience of God. As you do, I can't see how you wouldn't love him more. The second lesson that we need to see in this parable is that while God is patient, he's also just. In other words, he's not patient forever. There will be a day, Jesus is telling us, When God holds his tenants accountable for their actions. He will, as the tenants themselves say, put those wretches to a miserable death. God will judge those who don't accept his son or respect his son in this life. For those who repent of their sin and trust Jesus in faith, Jesus is the cornerstone. We can build our lives upon him. Upon him, we are actually being built into the new living temple of the Lord. But for those who resist him and who persist in their hatred of him, Jesus is not a cornerstone, but a stumbling stone. All who fall on him will be broken to pieces, he says. If he falls on anyone, they will be crushed by him, he says. Jesus Christ is the just judge of the universe. And he will judge those who remain in rebellion against him. Now this parable makes clear, church, that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those to whom Jesus is cornerstone. Their lives are built on him. And there are those to whom Jesus is a stumbling stone. Those who will be crushed by him. And this parable just makes it so clear that there there isn't a third option But there's no third way you either love Jesus or you hate him. And yes, Jesus, as he's presented in this parable, in the Bible, he is absolutely and perfectly holy. But in the gospel, he offers you that holiness. He offers you, through his perfect life and sacrificial death, the opportunity to be made holy in your standing before God. He makes available to us his perfect, righteous reward, He cleanses us with his perfect holiness and he makes us acceptable dwelling places for God's Holy Spirit. And so yes, Jesus is perfectly and absolutely holy. But because he came to be crushed for us, that holiness can actually be good news and not bad news. And yes, Jesus is omniscient and all-knowing. But that only means that he knew everything that he might possibly know about you. Including your deepest, darkest secrets. Including the things that you won't even admit to yourself, much less to other people. He knew the absolute worst things about you that could possibly be known. And still, knowing all of those things, before the foundation of the earth, he chose to die in your place. Yes, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows all of your sins. He counts not their son. He holds them not against you. And yes, Jesus is perfectly omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But that only means that he could have used his power to crush those who rebel against him. And instead, he chose to offer himself for those who trusted in his saving work. Yes, he's all-powerful, but that only means that he could have summoned a heavenly host to save him from the cross. But instead, he chose to die for you and for me. Yes, he's all-powerful. But that only means that the power by which he created the world, he uses now to sustain us and to uphold us and to help us endure unto the end in the faith. And yes, Jesus is immutable. He will never change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. But that only means that he will forever be for you and not against you if you trust him in faith. That only means he will be your righteous substitute forever if you trust him in faith. That only means that he will be your perfect mediator and good shepherd and great high priest forever and ever and ever if you trust him in faith. I pray that you would trust in and love this Jesus. May he be to you and to me the precious cornerstone for all eternity. Church, let's pray. Father, I pray that in light of who Jesus reveals himself to be here, you would stir our hearts for him. I pray that in light of who Jesus reveals himself to be here, that you would grow us in our love for him. I pray that our faith in Jesus will be real and true. I pray that we would be sincere in our faith, producing good fruit, not like the wicked tenants, but producing good fruit, as you called us to. And I pray that that fruit, ultimately, God, would amount to greater and deeper and sweeter and realer love for your son. May we see him to be who he is. May he be to us the precious cornerstone, the king of kings. And may we love him in response. Pray that today. In the name of your son. Amen.